Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Great. Great. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, and yeah, as Anne said, we are continuing our series, Faithful Presence, Living Like Jesus in a Broken World. And the idea behind this series is, well, I won't need to convince you of this part, uh, our world is a complex world to live in. And we live in it at a particularly complex point of time. Our world is a divided, messy, broken place. We've been praying about something of that this morning. And yet we believe that the Bible teaches That as followers of Jesus, we should not seek to get out of this world and have nothing to do with it. But rather, we are called to be a presence in this world that brings life, that brings joy, that brings blessing. We are here to serve and love and bless this world and be very present in it whilst also faithful to our God. And there are many characters in Scripture and many examples and passages in Scripture that teach us how we can do this. But for the first four weeks of this series, we've been looking at one guy who maybe uh, embodies this better than most, who is the character of Daniel. So over these four weeks, this being the fourth, we've looked at four snapshots from Daniel's life. And from next week, we'll leap into the New Testament and look at some other themes as well. I want to pick up today on a Sunday school classic, which is Daniel in the lion's den, uh, which last week, I don't know if it's the same here, in the South, apparently they learned about that in the kids' work last week, and they had people dressed as lions and roaring at each other. I'm so sorry to disappoint you. That's not happening today. Um, not here, at least, maybe up in the kids' work. So that's, that's probably the fun place to be. But we're going to look at this story, and I want to draw out this idea of what was it that filled Daniel with courage to live as a faithful presence in his context, and what can we learn about how to do the same. So a bit of background about the passage. In 605 BC, the Babylonian army invaded Jerusalem, destroying the city and the temple and enslaving many of their most promising people and taking them off into exile so that they could shape them to become uh, a part of the Babylonian culture, the Babylonian kingdom. Daniel is one of those people. And so over the last few weeks, we have looked at how Daniel lived faithful to God whilst also serving in Babylon under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the bit we're going to pick up today chapter 6, actually there's been a regime change. So Nebuchadnezzar has handed over to his son. You can read about him in chapter 5. It's only a short chapter because at the end he dies and he's murdered actually. And then Darius the Mede or Cyrus the Persian, because one grandiose title was not enough for him, he takes over the kingdom. And at the beginning of chapter 6, we are told that Darius has set up the whole of the Babylonian kingdom so that it's ruled by 120 rulers called satraps. And above them are three administrators, one of whom was Daniel. So Daniel is in an amazing position of power. But what's more, Darius so respects Daniel that he plans actually to raise him up above the other two administrators so that Daniel will actually rule over the entire kingdom. Now, the other rulers are not very keen on this idea. And so they go to try and find some kind of gossip on Daniel that they can use to tear him down, but they can find nothing about him. He is of great character. So instead of being able to find some kind of vice that they can exploit, instead they decide to exploit his virtue, namely his commitment to the God of Israel. And if they know anything of Daniel, they know that this is a man who is deeply committed to praying, not to the Babylonian gods, but to the one true God of Israel. And so they think that's it. That's what we're going to use to get him. 
So they go to King Darius and they come up with this idea. Basically, they flatter him and they're a bit like, hey, Darius, you know, we think you're so wonderful. We love to worship you. We think everyone should worship you. And actually, it's not fair that you would share your worship with other Babylonian gods. So here's an idea. Why don't you pass a law that says for 30 days, no one may worship or pray to any of the other gods, only to you. And Darius is like, he's swept up in the flatter and he likes that idea. And he's like, yeah, I, I, I am important. I will go for that. And then they say, hey, here's another idea. In fact, why don't you make it a law and and say that anyone who doesn't do that gets thrown to the lions. And Darius is like, yeah, that sounds like a reasonable thing to do. And so he writes down this law and he falls straight into the trap. Because according to Medo-Persian law, as soon as the king had issued a decree like that, it was binding and not even the king himself could overturn it. So actually there is a story from antiquity of a guy called Darius III who, um, who condemned someone to death, wrote it in law, and then suddenly got evidence that this guy was innocent. But because of the law, he was unable to overturn that and had to send this innocent man to his death. So we know this law worked in practice. And these people exploit that, kind of, that, that, that facet of the law to trap Darius in this situation. Verse 10, it says this. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men, that's the accusers, went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Just picture that scene for a moment. Daniel goes into his house, he goes upstairs, and the, there's a window in his room. Now, the windows in these rooms were typically very small. They weren't double glazed, they were just open spaces. And so they were small enough that no one could get into them. They were also covered in a wooden sort of lattice so that you could see out and the breeze could get in, but no one else could see in and no one else could get in. So these guys aren't just like innocently stumbling across Daniel here. They have had to go out of their way to spy on him whilst praying. I don't know how they did it, whether they scaled the wall or hacked his Alexa or whatever, but like somehow they have made a calculated attempt to catch Daniel in the act of praying. And they get the evidence they need. They go back to the king and they say this, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. The king hears this and says he is greatly distressed, which is British understatement for enraged, because he realizes that two things have happened. One, the people that he has entrusted with his kingdom, the people he thought he could trust to rule, have actually stabbed him in the back. And what's more, his most trusted advisor, the one he wanted to give the whole kingdom to, he is now forced to execute him. And so he issues this decree reluctantly that Daniel is to be thrown in the lion's den. I don't know about you, I don't have a den of lions in my house, but kings would do that in the ancient Near East because a lion was considered the king of beasts. And so lion hunting was the sport of kings because if you were a ruler and you could go and take down the king of beasts, that would be your way of saying, I'm not ruling only over people, I'm powerful in all creation. And so kings would go and hunt lions and get like three or four of them or whatever and keep them like trophies alive in a cave. And it would be like this hollowed underground cave that you would lower food into through a hole sort of in the ground. And then you would seal it with a stone. And so Darius has Daniel lowered into this cave where there are lions below. And even as he does so, you can hear the regret in his voice as he says, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you, which I think is kind of ironic. That's pretty much close to being a prayer to another God, which he's just condemned Daniel for. But he's just desperate at this point. And we're told that rather than going back to the palace and enjoying food, entertainment and sleep, instead he spends the evening worrying, fasting 
and completely sleepless, unable to, 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 to sleep and get rest because of what's happening to Daniel. The next morning it says this, At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This is an amazing story, but it's also quite a different story to the context that most of us find ourselves in. I rarely wake up in the morning and think, I wonder if this is the day I'm going to be thrown to lions. But we all face pressures. Whether it is the pressures of just challenging life circumstances in general, or particularly to do with this city, whether it is pressures and temptations to compromise on your faith in Jesus, whether it is the challenge of trying to work out how do I outwork my faith in a context that is sometimes somewhere on the spectrum between ambivalent on the one hand and outright hostile on the other. I mean, maybe some of us literally do have people who are out to try and tear us down because of our faith. Whatever your circumstances and situation right now, I want to put it to you that all of us will need moments of courage if we are to be a faithful presence. You might not be in that situation now, but it may come. And if you are to have courage, then you need the same thing to sustain you that sustained Daniel, and it's prayer. Prayer goes right through the story of Daniel. Actually, I mean, it was prayer that got him into that trouble. So you might want to say, if you want to avoid the lions, don't pray. But that's not the message, honestly. Like, the message is actually, prayer might have got him into that situation, but it's actually prayer that sustained him in and got him out of that situation as well. And if we are to be a courageous, faithful presence, we need to learn to pray. So I want to just suggest two simple things that this passage teaches us about the nature of prayer. And the first is this. Prayer recenters us. Prayer recenters us. When you look through the story of Daniel, he is regularly praying again and again and again. It's a habitual part of his life. I don't know about you, but I often find that prayer is the thing I go to in the crisis moments. Like, oh gosh, something's going wrong, whether it's a, 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 something falling apart or an unexpected situation or a challenging conversation or something, then I go to prayer. And of course, that's great. That's a good time to go to prayer. But for Daniel, actually, that's not the case at all. He's always praying. It's not like, oh, things are getting difficult. I guess I ought to try this prayer thing. Like, he has habitually been praying at this point, he has been in Babylon for 70 years. And over those seven decades of his life, he has built a regular recentering practice of prayer again and again and again and again, such that he was known for being a person of prayer. Daniel didn't start praying in the moment of crisis, he continued praying in the moment of crisis. Verse 10 says, Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. I don't even get the sense from that verse that Daniel even inten intensified his prayer, like add in a fourth one. Like he carries on doing what he has always been doing. Because prayer is a habitual way of recentering your life on what matters most. Recentering your life on, I think, the king and his kingdom. Actually, praying three times a day was typical practice for the Jews when they lived in Jerusalem. I don't know how many of them carried it on when they were here in exile. Daniel certainly did. He continued living by the way of his previous kingdom whilst living in this new situation. Typically, they would pray three times a day, morning as a way of saying, before Babylon gets a chance to shape me, I want to be shaped not by this kingdom, though I am present in it, I'm faithful to your kingdom. So Lord, would you shape me first of all before I go about my day? 
At noon, they would stop what they were doing and they would pray again as a way of saying, however Babylon has shaped me, Lord, forgive me and strengthen me and give me peace and set me up for the second half of my day. The end of the day, they would get to it and they would say, Lord, however Babylon has shaped me through the day, forgive me and give me peace and reset me for tomorrow. At key points of the day, prayer is a thing that recenters them. It reminds them of what kingdom they are truly living for and under. And it's not just about their body clock, as it were. It's, it's also about their, um, the, the sort of orientation of their vision, if I can put it like that. It says in verse 10 that when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went to his home, he went to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how many rooms Daniel had in his house or how many windows he had to choose from. I don't know if he just kind of picked as his prayer room the one that happened to face towards Jerusalem a thousand miles away, or given that Jeremiah actually told the exiles to proactively build houses, I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to think that Daniel might actually have built his whole house and therefore his life around an orientation towards Jerusalem. Either way, he's really intentional about this. He doesn't just pray wherever he finds himself. He goes and he looks to this city that is a thousand miles away and is actually in ruins. The temple of his God is in ruins and yet in his heart, he's saying, I am orienting every part of my life towards that temple, that kingdom. I live in this kingdom, but I live by that kingdom. There is an intentionality to prayer. He is living by the rhythms and the body clock of a different kingdom. And he's living with an oriented vision towards a different kingdom. In fact, two of the three daily prayers that Jews prayed coincided with the sacrifices at the temple. So everything about Daniel's day is orienting his mind to the temple of God and to this kingdom to which he pledges his allegiance. I don't know what prayer looks like for you. I don't know what it should look like for you, but I think it should include something of that kind of intentionality. If we are to be a faithful presence here, very much present in this world, but faithful to a different kingdom, faithful to King Jesus, then we need to intentionally build our lives on a rhythm of prayer that is shaped by his kingdom. Like our world is constantly trying to shape us in a whole load of ways. I mean, to be clear, I love this world. It's the best one I've ever lived in, but there are challenges in this world. There are patterns and rhythms and influences in this world and in this city that can shape us in a way that takes us away from the faithful part of our calling to be faithful present. Whether it's just the pace of life or whether it's the, the information or news feeds or opinions that are being beamed at us regularly, we're inviting into our lives through social media. Like whether it's the value systems that cause us to think of ourselves and other people differently, we are being shaped and we are in danger of being shaped more by the kingdom that we live in rather than the kingdom that we're faithful to. Prayer is a way of recentering ourselves regularly and saying, I want to be present, but I want to be a faithful presence. So what does that kind of intentionality look like for us? Well, I'm not saying you have to go and buy a plot of land and build a house with windows facing the mermaid. That would be weird. Uh, I mean, do it if you want, knock yourself out, but I'm not going to do that. But you may want to find ways of intentionally orienting your vision and your physicality and your body clock to the kingdom of God. What does that look like? Well, it may mean, I mean, you can pray anywhere, anytime you want. In fact, that's, that's brilliant. And I do. I snatch moments here and there. But there's something about just building in a regular habit that is life-changing, is really powerful and sustaining. You might want to find an actual place where you go and pray, a room in your house or a seat in your house or whatever it happens to be, something that inspires you. I was writing this talk and I got a WhatsApp message from a friend of mine who is currently planting a church in San Francisco. Uh, and this is what he said, my prayer spot this morning. 
Look at that. That's not fair. That's not fair. I saw that. My first reaction was jealousy. I was like, how do you get that as your prayer spot? My second reaction was like, you're not praying. You're on your phone. And I felt self-righteous, which is way better. (laughs) But like he's found a place that inspires him. And he goes there every morning and he just prays to God. What is it for you? What is it that, that is the space that you can go to and say, this is my time now where I remember what kingdom I'm living under. You might want to try having three prayer times a day. It doesn't have to be long, like just three hours a time like I do or something, but just, uh, <laughs> that's not true. Uh, but just, it's like just little times where you recenter yourselves at different points of the day. Morning, get up, and maybe before you even get out of bed or before you touch your phone, why don't you pray? It's a way of saying, Lord, I want to be shaped by your kingdom before the kingdom of Twitter. Or like, don't worry, that cesspool of outrage will still be there when you finish praying. And like the, the, the news notifications will still be there when you finish praying. Actually, what happens if you start with the kingdom of God, you see those things differently because you see them through the lens of the God that you've devoted your morning to. I'm not saying don't go near those things, of course. I love Twitter and I love the news, but like, I know that those things could shape me into their pattern if I'm not first shaped into the kingdom of God. So start there. Noon, uh, I don't know, set an alarm at 1 p.m. or something like that if that works for you. And then just take a moment, wherever you are. You don't have to declare to everyone in your office, it's prayer time. Like, like just, um, if if you want, (laughs) but it'd be a bit weird. But like, just take a moment. If your alarm goes off, just to sit there in quiet. Maybe just turn your hands up on the desk as a way of saying with your posture, Lord, this moment's for you. And just pray the Lord's Prayer. 30 seconds, all it takes with this power in saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. At the end of the day, look back over your day and say, Lord, I'm aware that there are, there are times where I've been less of a faithful presence and times where I've succeeded as well. And so I celebrate the good, the, the good, the true, the beautiful, the pure stuff that's been in my life. But also I ask for forgiveness for the times where I have not represented your kingdom well. Would you forgive me? Would you give me peace? Would you reset me for the next day? Like for me and my wife, Helen, we do that every evening and we've never quite got our morning routines together. But evenings is a perfect time just to reflect back over the day and to pray. And there are all sorts of prayers you can do that help you through that process. If you want help on this, check out the prayer website, uh, the prayer page on our website, christchurchlondon.org forward slash prayer. And in particular, one of the devotional guides we produced about a year ago, actually, and there may be physical copies downstairs at the welcome point. Um, it has morning, noon, and night prayers, including a prayer called the Prayer of Examine, which is a way of reflecting back over your day and committing it to God. Learn to build a habit of re-centering prayer into your life. And if you want more resources on this, I can recommend a ton of books, a ton of podcasts, but maybe one that is particularly current you may find helpful is Pete Gregg's new book, How to Pray, which is absolutely brilliant. And actually, alongside it, he has redone his prayer course. The course has been out for a few years now, but he's redone it. New videos, new uh, study guides to sort of link with the book. If you feel like you could do with learning to pray with others, which can be a really powerful way to do it, get hold of these resources. Run it in your connect groups. If you're not yet part of a connect group, There are midweek groups. They're brilliant places for community and doing life together. You can learn to pray with others. It will be a brilliant eight-week journey that hopefully will set you up for the rest of your life. Prayer is a recentering thing. And of course, there are moments where you pray and it's just incredible and breakthrough comes in a moment. But that's not always the case. Actually, the power in prayer as a recentering thing is the repetition of prayer. It's doing it again and again and again and again. As James K.A. Smith, who was here at an event with us on Tuesday, as he writes in his book, You Are What You Love, there is no formation without repetition. He's right. Not every prayer time you have will be amazing. 
Not every prayer time you have has to be amazing for it still to be effective. It's, it's like eating. Like there, you don't remember the majority of meals you have eaten. There is probably a handful of meals that were just so exceptional that you remember them because it was a world-class restaurant or a, a particular event or I cooked it for you or whatever it happens to be. But those aside, like you won't remember most meals and yet every single one of them has nourished you. The same is true with prayer. I can think of a handful of times where I have prayed and it's been absolutely incredible and I could tell you the story of exactly where I was, exactly what happened. Most of them aren't like that, to be honest. But everyone nourishes me because everyone recenters me on the kingdom of God. We need to get the practice of recentering prayer into our lives. First thing prayer does, it recenters us. Secondly, prayer encourages us. It doesn't just focus our minds, it actually does something to us. It puts something into us, it puts courage into us. Actually, that's what the word encourage means it means literally to put courage in. And prayer does that. Prayer is a moment where you open yourself up to God and you say, I'm going to need courage, whether today or in the future. Would you encourage me? Would you put courage into me? And when we pray, that happens. We invite God to do that. For me, I've always found prayer quite difficult, to be honest. It's only like being through hard work and repetition that this has become something that is sometimes, not even always, a joy to me. But as I have learned to pray, often in tandem with reading scripture, it has put courage into me that I wouldn't have otherwise. Because when I read scripture, perhaps a psalm, and then I reflect on the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the power of God, what he has done in the past, what he promises to do in my life, as I reflect on those things and then pray that scripture back over my life, the circumstances I'm facing, the people I'm struggling to get on with, the challenges that I'm fearful of, the things I can't seem to get answers to, as I pray those things through the lens of scripture, it's like courage and faith goes into me. I am encouraged. Prayer encourages you. Daniel had been praying for 70 years, three times a day, facing Jerusalem. I doubt every one of those prayer times was amazing, but I do believe that everyone nourished him. So that in the moment where he needed courage most, and he would have needed courage like regularly, I'm sure, but in this moment where he's facing the lions, he's not thinking, I wonder if God's faithful. I should probably wrestle with that question at some point. No, he gets courage from within because of a life of having courage put in. Through prayer, repeated, regular, recentering, heart-opening, spirit-receiving prayer, it puts courage into him. The time to begin learning, the time to begin learning to pray is not when your foot hits the floor of the lion's den. It's a random Monday morning when you get up and you say, today I'm going to start a habit and I'm going to keep going for 70 years. That's not to say God won't answer the prayers that are cried out in moments of desperation. If you are in the lion's den as it were right now, it's not too late. Start praying. But I am saying that if you want to be guaranteed to have courage when your foot hits the floor of the lion's den, it starts on a Monday morning and then a Monday noon and a Monday evening and a Tuesday morning and you get the picture. Prayer fills us with courage by fixing our minds on the king, reminding ourselves what he is like and what he is capable of doing and receiving the gift of courage that he pours into our hearts. Let me tell you a story from my own life when I was literally thrown into a den of light. <laughs> no, uh, a, a challenge from my life where I needed courage. And this is an old story. It's from 2005. Uh, and so I've been preaching in Christchurch 10 years and I've never told you my best story. I don't know how that's happened, but today is the day. Um, so... 
2005, I was living in Canterbury in Kent, uh, actually with that guy who's now in San Francisco um, pretending to pray, but actually showing <laughs> pictures on his phone. Um, but I, I was at a church there, and uh, it was a great church, and I was there one evening, and I remember I was at the evening event, and I remember exactly everything about it. I remember who was preaching that day. I remember what he was preaching on. He was preaching from the Psalms. He was preaching on the faithfulness of God. I remember it actually because I remember how I felt there. I was a bit like, I know this stuff. I read this. Like, I honestly felt like this is nothing new to me, which I'm not saying is a good attitude. It was a bad attitude, but I remember that feeling so well learning about the faithfulness of God. I was on the band that week. I've never been asked to be in the band here, but there you go, that's a different story. And I was there, and I was right at the end, and I was uh, packing away, so I was quite late already, and then I walked Helen, who's now my wife, wasn't at the time, I walked her home, and then I walked across the park to get to my house, which is on the other side of the city, and always walked through this park, never had a problem there before. But it's quite late at this point, and so I'm walking through the park, and just thinking or praying or whatever, I don't know. And, um, and then I just became aware that there were two guys coming up behind me. And before I knew it, I had one of them either side, hoods up over their heads. I couldn't see their faces. And one of them pulled a knife on me and stuck it into my stomach and just held it there. And the other one grabbed my arm and the two of them, they just forced me off the path and into the dark at the side. It was an absolutely terrifying moment. I hadn't seen it coming. It happened so fast. And the guy with the knife, he said to me, what do you have? Give me everything you've got. And so I gave him my phone, my wallet, my keys, and I had a bag with me as well. And he said, what's in your bag? Only thing I had in my bag was my Bible at the time. I've just been at church. And so I got that out. And I said, it's a Bible. And he said to me, do you believe in God? I said, yes. He's got this knife pressed there. He said, do you believe that your God could protect you from people like us? Now, I know the answer to that question <laughs> up here. And if you, wonderful, nice people, asked me that over coffee without the knife pressed to me, <laughs> absolutely I know that. Of course I know that. But in that moment, you don't want to put that theory to the test. If that had been the first time in my life that I had thought about the faithfulness of God, I don't know what the answer would have been that would have come out. But it wasn't. For years, I had been learning about the faithfulness of God praying about the faithfulness of God. That evening I had heard a sermon on the faithfulness of God and each little drip had gone in and put courage within me so that in that moment where I was honestly terrified, I am not naturally courageous by default. In that moment, I didn't have to ask questions. Is God worth trusting? The courage was in there. I had to let it out. And it wasn't a big, bold declaration, but as the guy held the knife to my stomach, he said, do you believe that your God could protect you from people like us? I just said quietly, yes, yeah, I do. And I remember the moment just so vividly. There was just this flash of panic across the guy's face. And he turned to his friend, he said, give him back his stuff. We cannot steal from him. And he gave me back my phone, my wallet, my keys, my Bible as well. Uh, lesson there, always carry a Bible. <laughs> <laughs> It's on my iPhone, honest. Like that's, <laughs> that's not going to cut it. He said to his friend, give him back his stuff. We can't steal from him. His friend was like, I'm not going to give him back his stuff. The guy turned the knife on his friend, who I now know is his brother. He said, give him back his stuff. We are not stealing from him. They gave me back everything, and the guy put the knife away, and he told me his life story. It was this, just a surreal moment. He told, him, like, told me why he was there and where he'd come from and why he needed money, and just bizarre. And then he said, I'm so sorry I tried to steal from you. I'm a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Not practicing, he says. <laughs> like, 
you need to practice. <laughs> and then he shook my hand, he apologized, and, and, and I went on my way. So I'm like in a bit of a daze at this point, like what has just happened? I got to the end of the park, I called the police, I got back to my house, they came, they picked me up, they took me to the station, took a statement, took a DNA swab from my hand. Like I told them everything this guy told about himself and they knew who he was, like they recognized this description. And so they went and they found them, but actually in between mugging me and being caught, they had mugged another guy, marched him to a cash point with the knife, um, had taken lots of money from him, hadn't physically harmed him, but left him an emotional wreck. And actually through the court process, I met this guy and, he, yeah, he was re really messed up because of it, as you would expect. I remember this moment where I was sitting there and I just finished my statement and the police officer put down the pen. I don't know, maybe he does this all the time, but there was something about it. He said, are you sure there isn't anything you'd like to change about your statement? And I was thinking, you don't believe this happened. And right now I, I'm struggling to believe this happened. But one of my friends was a senior police officer in the force. And he said that over the next few weeks, just that story went viral around like, everyone just sharing about this weird thing. Have you heard what happened? And this guy had a reputation. By the time it went to court, um, it, it, it was revealed that he'd already had 19 previous offenses and he was only 18 years old. So like, he, he had a reputation in the area. There's loads I could tell you about him, about where his story gone and it's it's a tricky one um, but I remember this moment of just thinking I don't know what happened there no angel came out and just put away the pen knife or, but I felt something of the presence of God and a courage that I can only attribute to him a few weeks later I was walking past his news agents and I saw this <laughs> which, uh, which uh, I'm sorry it's such a bad photo this was 14 years ago and a very dodgy old phone but like I read this report and in it had bits from the court transcript but the judge was like is this really what happened and the guy was like yeah I just I don't know why I just couldn't steal from him I know why it's the presence and the power of God now here's the thing like the moment when the knife is pressed against your stomach or the lion's teeth are bearing down on you that's not the moment to start praying because what comes out of you in those moments depends very much on what you put into you over years and I only had the courage to respond positively there because of the faithfulness of God that had come into me through worship, through prayer, through preaching, through giving my life over to him and allowing his spirit to encourage me. I don't know what you are going through right now. Some of you may feel like you are in the lion's den right now. Some of you may feel like you're in a good season and I can leave that courage thing to another day. You can't. You can't. Because there'll be no guarantee that what will come out of you will be courageous unless you've been encouraged first. If you are in the lion's den right now, it's not too late to start praying. Pray, cry out to God. He can change your situations. He can deliver you. I mean, I imagine that when Daniel knelt down and prayed three times a day, part of his prayer was, Lord, make it so that I don't have to go into the lion's den. And that's not what God did. He didn't save him from going in, but he saved him in it and he saved it through it. He answered the prayer, just not in the way Daniel expected. As Joe said last week, that the presence of God is his provision in the fire and in the lion's den. His presence is his provision. If you are in the lion's den right now, cry out to God. But if you're in a good season of life, don't wait for the lion days. Like start now. Build a habit of recentering your whole being on his kingdom, on the king, and allowing him to fill you with his courage. So that in the moments of pressure, you will have a reservoir of courage to draw from. I wonder if the band can come back up. Like Daniel's been here for 70 years. Potentially shaped by so much in Babylonian culture and religion. 
His own city and temple is utterly destroyed. Everything looks like the promises of God are not being fulfilled. They're nowhere near, and yet he clings on to the promises of God. And over those years, he becomes convinced, convinced, convinced of the faithfulness of God so that in the moment of pressure, courage comes out. And if Daniel was able to cling on to this idea of the faithfulness of God, we have even more reason to. Because Daniel never got to see what we get to see, which is the person of Jesus Christ. And there are so many parallels between Daniel and Jesus. Here are just a few. Let them fill you with courage. Like Daniel, Jesus faced opposition from those who did not want him to inherit his kingdom. He faced enemies who tried to find evidence against him to tear him down but could find nothing. Because actually, unlike Daniel, who was a flawed human being, Jesus was tempted in every way but never, never sinned. He was constantly faithful to his God. Jesus had a deep commitment to prayer. You read through the Gospels and he was regularly being found, or actually not found, which is the point, because he'd gone off by himself in the morning or the evening or snatching moments in the middle of the day just to dedicate himself to the Father, to reorient himself to the King and his kingdom. Prayer was the thing that undergirded everything Jesus was able to do, his life, his miracles, his ministry, and the moment where he turned his face to Jerusalem, not looking out of a window in prayer, but actually saying, I'm heading there. I'm heading there and knowing I'm going to lose my life. And when Jesus, like Daniel, stood before the rulers, like Darius, Pilate actually said, there's no reason to condemn this man. I can find no crime that he has done. And yet he was given over to death, a death he didn't deserve. Unlike Daniel, Jesus was not rescued from death. He died on a cross. And it was when he was dead, not before, that he was lowered into a cave, like Daniel. A stone sealing the front. This time not sealed with the signet ring, of the king, but actually with Roman guards bearing that symbol so that his situation was utterly unchangeable except for the intervention of God. Then at break of day, three days later, disciples went to the tomb. The stone had been rolled away and they found an angel, this time not holding back the teeth of a lion, but saying, the lion's dead. <laughs> like The enemy has been defeated and Jesus isn't here because he is alive and he reigns forevermore. God has given us his most precious thing in his son. There is no good thing that he will hold back from us. And the good news at the heart of Christianity, and if you're exploring Christianity here and you have big questions, this is the perfect place to ask those questions in community with others of us who are seeking to follow Jesus. Ask your questions. I'd love to talk to you. Join us on Alpha. It's a brilliant way of exploring these questions of faith. But the heart of Christianity, the promise is this. Jesus has defeated all the enemies in this world and he is victorious. And so we reorient, we recenter our lives around that king, the one who has guaranteed the victory. And if you believe in him and follow him, then you will go through death, but you will also be guaranteed a resurrection like his resurrection and an eternal place in his new creation. We have seen the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. We have every reason to trust him. I wonder if you'll stand. I, it was great just hearing the prayers earlier for our nation and from Smart and Nicole and Elise. And basically, I feel like they preached the sermon before I did because just that reorienting your vision towards the kingdom of God gives you 
faith to be present here, but full of faith that the king is going to be victorious. And Elise prayed from that line from Romans 8, which is actually where I was planning to end right now. We're going to worship, and this is an opportunity just to fix our minds, to make a choice that whatever we're going through, I'm going to choose to be faithful here, faithful to that kingdom. Present here, faithful to that kingdom. Whatever you're going through, as we sing this song that celebrates the faithfulness of God, allow it to fill you with courage and give you a new perspective on your challenges. And I'm going to read these words from Romans 8 over us, but you may just want to hold out your hands as I do so. You may want to close your eyes. You may want to picture some of the challenges in your life. And take courage from this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he is praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, Neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's worship him. Let's allow him to pour courage into our hearts by his Holy Spirit.